Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 17, if you'd like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your tablet or phone. Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 through 27, so we've got a lot of ground to cover today, but I'll have you out of here by two. Uh, we'll, We'll break for a donut or something, but anyway. The topic this morning, Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for the wait between his two comings. The title of our message, How to Maintain a Love-Wait Relationship. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you and uh, consider it a privilege and an opportunity to be here this morning to sit under the teaching of your word brought to us by the Holy Spirit. I pray that he would be active in uh, uh, reminding us, Lord, of things we already know, teaching us things that we may not know, that he would prompt our hearts at certain points in the message, Lord, about what you want to say to us, uh, and that we would in every way be edified and built up for the work of the ministry so that when we leave this place, we're better witnesses of your grace and mercy and love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. How long would you wait in line for something? Well, the answer, I suppose, depends on the something. One guy waited over two weeks in line outside an Apple store on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan to purchase a gold iPhone 5S. In 2005, a guy camped outside a movie theater in Seattle for 139 days to be the first in line to see Star Wars Episode Three. You probably wouldn't wait that long for an iPhone or for a movie. What about for a job? Recently in Long Island, applicants camped out in line for five days to apply for a job. One thing these examples have in common is that you know, usually to the minute, exactly when your waiting will end. What if you were asked to wait indefinitely in adverse conditions with no set time for the end of your waiting? And what if you had no choice, but you had to wait? Well, that is essentially the situation we find ourselves in as believers in Jesus Christ. We live between his two comings to the earth and are anticipating his return to resurrect and rapture the church. And while his return for us is presented in the Bible as imminent, we must wait for it indefinitely with no set time. It calls for a special kind of patience, a robust, active, spiritual patience. Our text is going to suggest two aspects of that kind of patience while waiting for the Lord. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, while waiting for his return, you are to proclaim the patience of Jesus. And number two, while waiting for his return, you are to practice the patience of Jesus. Take a look, first of all, in verses 9 through 13 at proclaiming the patience of Jesus Christ. Now, let me spend just a moment explaining the phrase, the patience of Jesus Christ. I get it from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, which reads like this. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Jesus Christ. Now, older translations render the patience of Jesus Christ as the patient waiting for Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, it seems like Jesus who is patient. On the other, it seems like we're patient waiting for him. So which is it? Well, it can be both, and it is both. We see the patience of Jesus both in his earthly ministry and his waiting to return for us, and we are called upon to imitate his patience as we wait for him. In our text, as the Lord explains to his disciples what just happened in his transfiguration, we first see that his followers must wait 
but that we have a message to proclaim while we are patiently waiting. So let's start in verse nine. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man is risen from the dead. The vision is in verses one through eight. It's of Jesus being transfigured. For a brief moment, the three disciples with him on that mountain saw him as he will appear in his second coming. And they saw Moses and Elijah with him discussing the end times. They were instructed to tell no one until after the resurrection. One possible reason was that the Jews were expecting their Messiah to establish the kingdom on the earth. Hearing about Jesus being transfigured would give the Jews the false impression he was about to establish the kingdom. He was not because the nation's leaders were going to officially reject him as their king. The vision was for his disciples to encourage them that even though Jesus was going to be crucified, he would still come in glory as promised in the Old Testament and establish the kingdom. Now, we may not get so activated by that, but uh, the Jew, in their mentality, they were looking for the kingdom of heaven on earth was promised to them and prophesied all over the Old Testament. They believed that when their Messiah came, he would establish that kingdom. And so any talk that Jesus had been transfigured and was shining and glowing and radiating from a power within would only fuel their thoughts that he was about to establish the kingdom. He was not because they were rejecting him, but he still needed to encourage his own disciples because they kept hearing him say that he was going to be crucified and they didn't quite understand that he would be resurrected, ascend into heaven and come again. And so he needed to show them a vision of his future glory and ensure them that the kingdom had not been abandoned, just postponed. And so that's what was going on uh, in this. And so, uh, verse 10, his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, uh, the scribes who were teachers were interpreting Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the last chapter of the Bible, which says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, having seen Elijah appearing with Jesus, the disciples were confused about the timing of the kingdom. So were they right that Elijah was gonna come first? Did Elijah come just now? Is this the kingdom? And these guys, even though Jesus will clearly tell them many times he's not gonna establish the kingdom right now, they keep asking him, so are you gonna do it right now? It's kind of the other night we were babysitting uh, for the grand boys and little Zeke, he just, you know, he comes up to me over and over and he goes, Papa, can he? Can he? Meaning candy, he's got this giant bag of Easter candy. And I'd say, no, no candy now. Can he? Candy? No, no candy. And he'd finally wear me down. Uh, and, and I'd say, all right, you know, but... Uh, but you know what, it's, and these, the disciples are like that. As Jesus said, I'm not gonna establish the kingdom now. Hey, Lord, now? Are you gonna establish the kingdom? Now? And, and he kept saying, no, not now. Even when he ascended into heaven, they just stood there looking into heaven until two guys appeared to them and said, what are you guys doing? Get out of here and go do what Jesus told you to do. He's not going to establish the kingdom right now, but he will return in like manner. And so Jesus answered and said to them, verse 11, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things, but I say to you, Elijah has come already 
and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Jesus said that Elijah had already come and that Elijah is still going to come in the future. Now, Elijah had come in the spirit and the power of the ministry of John the Baptist. Had the nation of Israel received Jesus as their Messiah, John's ministry would have been the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi. The Jews did not receive Jesus. As a result, they rejected John the Baptist, allowing Herod to behead him. Jesus, too, would suffer, leading to his crucifixion. In his resurrection, Jesus would return to heaven to await his return a second time. In the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, two witnesses precede that second coming. They may be and probably are Moses and Elijah. And in fact, we say that one of them will be Elijah as a literal fulfillment of Jesus' words to his disciples and of Malachi 4.5. And so Jesus said, hey, Elijah's already come in the person and ministry and power of John the Baptist, but he's also going to come just before my second coming. And we believe that will be Elijah along with Moses who were talking to Jesus about strategy on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is our message. Jesus Christ came as the God-man, died on the cross at Calvary for the sins of the world. He rose again the third day. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's coming a second time to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Before his second coming and before the great tribulation on the earth that precedes his second coming, he'll return in the clouds to resurrect and rapture his church. Since there has been a 2,000-year wait it has given rise to scoffing at the promise of his coming, to which the apostle Peter explains, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And so the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in the first century and the rapture hasn't occurred yet is a small amount of time from eternity's point of view. And then he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then later in that chapter, 2 Peter 3, in verse 15, Peter adds, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And so long-suffering is a special kind of patience that God has waiting while the world goes on waiting to send his son to resurrect and rapture the church so that more people can be saved. The Lord is patiently waiting. Now, we can actually go further back in talking about the patience of Jesus Christ. He certainly was patient as he lived in relative obscurity for 30 years before he stepped forward to be baptized and start his ministry. He certainly was patient in the years of his ministry in that he set aside the prerogatives of his deity to wait upon his father to tell him what to do and where to go and what to say. He certainly was patient during what we call his passion, enduring cruelty from both men and demons as he was crucified and entombed. He certainly was patient after his resurrection, waiting 40 days to ascend into heaven. He's patient waiting in heaven right now, waiting for his father to give him the go to resurrect and rapture the church. And he is certainly patient with his church, with you and I, is he not, as we walk with him 
on a daily basis. You and I depend on the patience of Jesus Christ uh, as we walk with him moment by moment. And that brings us back to his long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but instead repent and believe and be saved. He is patient with the world. The world is a terrible place. It's certainly not as God intended it. There is unbelievable uh, cruelty going on all over the world right now. And the Lord is patient with it, not willing even that the perpetrators of that cruelty would perish, but that they would come to eternal life. And you and I are thankful that the Lord has waited because many of us have only been saved a short time. And had the Lord come a year ago or 10 years ago, who knows where you would be today in your walk uh, with the Lord. You wouldn't be in this walk with the Lord. You'd be maybe lost forever. And so we thank God for his patience and, and we marvel at the patience of Jesus Christ. Now, while we're waiting for his return, we're also to practice the patience of Jesus Christ. There are multiple ex exhortations to believers to practice a robust active spiritual patience. For example, we're told in Hebrews 12:1, run with patience the race set before you. The Christian life is compared to a race. Uh, it's not a sprint. It's not even a marathon. It is a long distance race where you run and run and run all day, rest, run and run and run the next day, never stop running. Normally, we associate being patient with being passive. One of the reasons we don't like to wait is because there's nothing to do. Actually, now there's everything to do uh, that you have your smartphone. I mean, you, could, you, you don't even have to go to work. You could just wait in line all day and get all your work done. So it doesn't really matter if you're in line. But remember the days when there was nothing to do in line? How many of you remember that when your phone was 100 pounds and it was in the car and it was only for an emergency and it never worked anyway? when can you hear me now was uh, what you cried out all the time uh, and stuff. And so you're in line and, and it, it was just, there was nothing to do. Uh, and, and so we normally think, well, just be patient doing nothing. But biblical patience seems to be active. You're to run a race with patience. There's something that you bring to the table. In the episodes that follow, the underlying theme is that Jesus' followers, his disciples, you and I practice an active Patience. And so beginning in verse 14, when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. While Jesus, Peter, James, and John were gone, the other nine disciples had failed to exercise a demon from that young boy. Our modern versions say he was an epileptic, and that may indeed have been a proper medical diagnosis. By the way, the word translated epileptic there is moonstruck. It's the word they used for that type of disease because they felt that the lunar cycles had something to do with it. And before we laugh too hard about that, how many people still believe that uh, there's kind of crazy behavior when there's a full moon? I mean, whether it's anecdotal or not, we'll read something and say, oh, is there a full moon tonight? Uh, because we do have some understanding that people are still moonstruck uh, in that way. Now, even if it was what we would call epilepsy physically, the real issue behind the boy's physical condition was a demon. It wasn't that Jesus and his disciples weren't astute uh, medically and didn't know what to call it and they attributed it to a demon. It was a demon. People always wonder why we do not see more cases of demon possession. 
I don't know, but I'm glad. I, for one, am glad that we don't see more demon possession. I am not in any hurry to encounter demons uh, in this manner. I would also throw out this for your consideration. People today, especially, give themselves over to their own lusts, to their own selfishness, so readily and so often, there's no need for demons to possess them. They're already doing a great job ruining their own lives. The Bible says that Satan is a liar, he's a thief, he's a murderer. He wants to destroy. Uh, But people are doing a really good job destroying their own lives in the generation in which we live. And so possession is not as practical. The devil can focus on other things with his army of demons. Plus, it's not unusual for an enemy to change tactics during a long and protracted war. Satan's long war against God probably has seen the change of tactics many different times. We live in a much different age than the first century, and the devil, quite honestly, has a lot of other tools at his disposal, ways to make inroads into the church, into our hearts, into the lives of unbelievers to hold them captive. Uh, And so it shouldn't surprise us or we shouldn't think there's anything weird one way or the other about not encountering demon-possessed individuals as often as they did in the New Testament. Verse 16, so I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very moment. Was Jesus also rebuking his disciples here? Probably, but certainly he had a lot more folks in mind. He was talking to the entire generation who had seen his miracles over the length of time he had been with them. Now, I think what's happening in this little section, this rebuke, has to do with something Jesus said earlier. You remember he said, I bind the devil. And he was explaining to the Jews that he was about to, he could bring the kingdom of God, he would bind Satan uh, so that the terrible, perverse conditions of the world would change, uh, but the Jews were gonna reject him, which what? Is gonna leave Satan loose. And we showed you how that at the, in the book of the Revelation, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he does establish the kingdom, the very first order of business is to have angels bind the devil and throw him into the abyss for a thousand years. And so what Jesus, I think, is saying here is that You are a faithless generation because you're rejecting me. Therefore, the kind of perversions that you're seeing, i.e. a demon-possessed boy, are going to continue because Satan is not going to be bound as he could have been had you received me. And so, uh, a very powerful statement. So it's a lot more than just a rebuke to his disciples for not being able to cast out one demon out of one boy. It is a... uh, a statement upon the whole generation that they have actually, in one sense, they're saying we would prefer the kingdom of darkness to you being our king. We would prefer people being demon-possessed than to uh, bow down and worship you, and that's a very, very sad realization. 
Now, for our purposes this morning, we're most interested in the answer Jesus gives to his disciples. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, underscore that for just a minute. And then he says, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, most of the time we get right to the faith of the mustard seed. And, and give a study about faith. And there's not, nothing wrong with that, but I think Jesus is simply saying that even a tiny amount of faith, the smallest amount of faith you can imagine, if your faith amounted to a mustard seed, if, if, if somehow you could be squeezed and, and your faith could come out, and, and you say, what, where is it? I don't see it. It's, it's right there. It's the size of a mustard seed. Jesus is saying that is enough faith for you, if God asked you to, to move a mountain. You, you don't really need tons of faith to move a mountain. You just need to have faith. You just need to believe. In other words, Jesus is saying, if, if I told you to talk to that mountain and move that mountain and you did that, you would have enough faith to do that. The more important comment is what I had you underscore. He says, because of your unbelief. They said, why couldn't we do it? And he said, it's because of your unbelief. He didn't say it's because you don't have enough faith. He said it's because you have unbelief. The disciples had been successful previously in casting out demons. They had enough faith and they believed they could do it. So what happened? Well, first, let's see if we can get into precisely what unbelief is. Here's a rather long quote, but it's from J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, and it's a good quote. Uh, he says, the word translated unbelief will be found 12 times in the New Testament. Always, so far as I can see, it signifies not believing something which God has said. Some warning he gave, some promise he held out, some advice he offers, some judgment he threatens, some message that he sends. In short, to refuse to admit the truth of God's revealed word and to live as if we did not think that word was to be depended upon that is the essence of unbelief. He goes on to describe it by saying, unbelief is the oldest of the many spiritual diseases by which fallen human nature is afflicted. It began the day when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and brought sin into the world. They did not believe what God had told them. They did not believe what would be the consequence of disobedience. They did believe the tempter saying, you shall not surely die. Unbelief ruined millions in the days of Noah's flood. They would not believe the great preacher of righteousness when he warned them for 120 years to flee from the wrath to come. Unbelief slew myriads in the day when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire from heaven. When righteous Lot called on his sons-in-law to escape for their lives, he seemed as one who mocked. Unbelief kept Israel wandering 40 years in the wilderness until a whole generation was dead. We are expressly told they could not enter in because of unbelief. And so unbelief is that God has spoken. He said, given you a command. He's given you a warning. He's given you counsel. He's given you advice. He's given you a word. And you do not believe it for one reason or another. Now think of the situation in these verses as an illustration of us. Jesus was gone for a time, being revealed in his glory on the mountain. A group of his disciples were on the ground below, still dealing with the fact that Satan was unbound 
loose to create havoc. That sounds like the very situation we find ourselves in today, does it not? Jesus is in heaven glorified. We are on the earth dealing with the fact that the devil is still unbound. We live in a world full of uh, sin and darkness and all. In the Lord's absence, short as it was, unbelief had set in among his nine disciples. Could it be that unbelief is especially a problem that creeps in unexpectedly when disciples are patiently waiting for the Lord to return? Could it be that unbelief is something we must constantly guard against? In other words, the mere passage of time, as I wake up morning after morning and the Lord has not come for me, he hasn't come for me personally or us corporately, it gives more and more opportunity for me to have unbelief in some promise or uh, warning or counsel from God. As the devil attacks me, as my flesh rises up against me, it creates an atmosphere uh, where unbelief can flourish. And, and I believe that's true. Even in some measure as we are growing in the Lord, the passage of time waiting for him gives opportunity for unbelief to set in. So how do we guard against unbelief? Well, verse 21, interesting, he says, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, I don't think Jesus simply meant that if presented with an especially difficult demon or spiritual problem, you are to send the possessed person away or put the problem on hold and spend time praying and fasting. Jesus was calling for a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, not an emergency session. What he's saying is, you were not able to cast out this demon because you were not ready, and you weren't ready because you allowed unbelief to creep in, and they go together. And so there's kind of a, when we, I, what I'm getting from this is that when we slack off in the Christian life in one or more areas because after all, the Lord didn't come back, and he's probably, you know, here's how we think. I mean, let's just be honest. The Lord didn't come back yesterday. He hasn't come back since Pastor Gene said, ready or not, Jesus is coming. He's probably, it's one more step to, he's probably not going to come back today. So, why don't I just do whatever I want this afternoon and tomorrow? without consulting the Lord? Why don't I wander a little into some gray areas? Why don't I sin a little bit over here? Or, you know, whatever. Why don't I just let down? Why don't I relax spiritually? I used to think certain things were super important, but I'm pretty mature now. I don't really have to do the things I used to do when I was a young Christian. I mean, that was kind of fanatic, going to church all the time and reading my Bible all the time and praying all the time and telling people about Jesus. That was a lot. I mean, now I'm so much more mature, I don't really need to do those things. And you know what happens? You are sowing seeds for unbelief to take root in your life. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, um, practice an active patience by maintaining your spiritual life. Do things like being ready. Stir up the gift or gifts God's given you. Remain awake and sober. Don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together. These are all exhortations that I lifted from different scriptures. In other words, just live the Christian life with the same fervor you had when you were first saved and it will guard against unbelief having a way of settling in. These verses are preparing us for conditions that exist on earth 
until the Lord returns. Satan is loose. He's going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and we don't have time for unbelief to become a problem. Now, verse 22 and 23, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now, of course, they were sorrowful. They loved Jesus. They longed for the kingdom. And these guys really had given up everything to follow him. They threw in completely with Jesus. Their problem was that they were so close to the situation, they couldn't see the joy of his final statement that he would be raised from the dead. They should have been saying glory, hallelujah, instead of being sorrowful. But all they kept hearing was that he's going to die. They didn't understand this resurrection from the dead business. We are surrounded by evil and evil forces. Bad things happen to good people and bad things happen to God's people. But we face them with patience, empowered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which not only guarantees a a future resurrection or rapture, but of power to live here and now. I think sometimes when we're in a struggle or a suffering or a trial, I think we become exceedingly sorrowful because we, we stop at the fact that we live in a terrible world. We almost stop at the point where Jesus said, and they're, they're gonna crucify me, and we don't remember that Jesus has risen from the dead and that we have been born again and that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us and that uh, our light affliction, Paul was able to say whatever you're going through, he says, it is a light affliction because it only occurs for a moment and it works for us an eternal glory that we will have forever in heaven with the Lord. Uh, And so uh, this really, this little episode of disciples being sorrowful fits into our theme of being prepared for the times in which we live and practicing patience. We practice patience by understanding that we are going to suffer but that we have already in one sense been raised from the dead to sit with Jesus in heavenly places and we approach life seated at the right hand of the Father and have that heavenly perspective. The final episode of this chapter also seems disjointed, but it does fit nicely into our theme as you'll see. Verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, "Uh, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take custom or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to them, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Every male Jew over the age of 19 had to pay a set temple tax. It was mandated in the book of Exodus. Apparently, Jesus had not yet paid his annual temple tax. The tax collectors came to receive it, but also to catch Jesus in a controversy. Uh, They were hoping he would refuse to pay it so that they could accuse him. Jesus had a word of knowledge anticipating Peter's question before he asked it. He, He knew what had been going on, and he addresses Peter before Peter has a chance to even ask him. Jesus pointed out to Peter that the kings of the earth do not require taxes from their own family. It's one of the perks of royalty, I guess. Since Jesus was and is the king, 
then his subjects, which were the disciples in this case, should not be required to pay the temple tax. In fact, no believer in Jesus should have to pay it. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the king, you're my subjects, none of us are liable, therefore, for the temple tax, but in order to not offend anyone, Jesus would pay the tax for himself and for Peter. He did so with a notable miracle, having Peter cast a hook to catch the one fish in the entire sea that had a coin stuck in its mouth. And it, I, I love, this is a quirky, humorous situation. And anybody who thinks Peter doesn't have faith for a net fisherman to go out with a hook and, and you, know, you know how fishermen are, hey, what are you doing? Uh, what are you using for bait? Nothing. And, and what do you hope to catch? A coin. I, I mean, this is, you know, this is pretty impressive. But at any rate, there are any number of important lessons here. We want to concentrate on the one that helps us understand what it means to practice patience. The disciples were free from paying the tax, but they ought to subject their freedom to a greater spiritual principle, and that is to not do anything that would cause another person to stumble and to sin. This is a great New Testament principle. It is a rule of life for waiting Christians. We are a people under God's grace. Unless otherwise specified, all things are lawful for us to partake of and enjoy. We should guard our spiritual freedoms and not allow ourselves to be brought under legal requirements that are no longer in force. Let me give you a very interesting example that I think uh, goes to this subject beautifully. If I'm the Apostle Paul and I want to have Titus travel with me into Jewish territories, I refuse to have him circumcised because he is 100% Gentile and circumcision would be giving up grace in favor of legalism. So the Jew would look at Titus and say, you can't possibly be saved because you haven't been circumcised. And Paul would say, he's not a Jew and circumcision is nothing. You're trying to say that we're saved by grace through faith plus works and I'm not going to give ground on that. We're saved by grace through faith alone. But if I'm the Apostle Paul and I want to have Timothy travel with me into Jewish territories, I absolutely have him circumcised because he is 50% Jewish and his uncircumcision would be a great offense to the Jews. Now, having him circumcised still has nothing to do with him being saved, but it has everything to do with the fact that I would not be welcome in a synagogue and be able to preach the gospel with a person who is half Jewish who had never been circumcised. And so I am willing to give up my freedom in order to gain something greater and to not stumble others. This is a huge issue as we patiently wait for the Lord. And if you haven't been thinking about this lately, and those of you, maybe you're on Facebook or one of the social media sites, just think every time you're reading and you see some of your Christian friends and they say, whoa, they're doing that? That is the issue we're talking about. They have the freedom to do that, to go there, to see that, to say that, and you're stumbled by it, or at least you question it. And Christians do this all the time. We try and put our rules on others and we read uh, you know, them as sinning in certain areas because we can't do it. And so it's a big thing. I will say this, and it's only my personal observation. It does seem to me as though Christians have ventured too far into the attitude of flaunting their freedoms at the expense of offending others. 
any conversation I've had over the last few years where I've suggested to somebody, not that what they're doing is sin, but that what they're doing might cause others to sin has been met with tremendous resistance. Hey, I'm free to do it. You can't tell me what to do. The Bible doesn't directly say this is a sin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're not talking about whether or not it's sin. We're talking about whether or not it could stumble others. You practice patience by caring more about offending others than demanding your freedom in these gray areas. And one commentator reminds us of something very important when he says, never give up God's rights, but we may sometimes safely give up our own. For example, we should not be brought back under the rules and rituals of the law of Moses, not at all. If anybody wants me to keep the Sabbath, I'm going to oppose that tooth and nail. So if you decide that you wanna worship on Saturday and that that brings you closer to God, you are free to do that but you are not free to tell others they must also do that because that is a uh, position of grace versus the law. Another commentator said, Christian liberty is to take all that Christ provides, be free from having to fulfill a legal code to please God, being free from the frustration that says I can't make it, to being free from an external set of legal rules that I have to keep. This liberty, however, comes with a responsibility. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. I can't. The point is this. While living between the two comings of Jesus, we're to practice patience by always thinking of others first and if necessary, at least consider yielding your freedom in a certain area so as to not stumble others and perhaps win them to Christ. And so while while you and I might be able to say, hey, this thing that we're doing or I want to do, there's nothing wrong with it. I am totally free to do it in Christ. Good. What effect does it have when you do it openly and publicly on other Christians who do not have that freedom? And when you say, I don't care, you're in dangerous spiritual territory. In fact, I was gonna say you're treading dangerous waters, but in chapter 18, you'll see that Jesus said, if you actually offend someone, you're not treading water, you have a 100 pound weight around your neck and you're sinking quickly into water. And so we have to be very careful about this. Nobody wants to take your freedoms away. I don't want anybody to take my freedoms away, but we have to at least consider in these gray areas, am I hurting the cause of Jesus Christ? And so Jesus is patiently waiting to return for us. We're to practice patience by guarding against unbelief, by appropriating the power of the resurrection, and by exercising our liberties with care for others. It's a great prescription for the days in which we live. We end with James chapter five, verses seven and eight, where he exhorts us to be patient until the coming of the Lord, seeing how the farmer waits for his precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it and receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's pray together.